Welcome to the Boosted Volunteer Podcast. We share the stories of dedicated Booster Club volunteers and the tools and strategies they use to run successful booster clubs. We also have sought out experts on fundraising, volunteer management, and running nonprofits to share best practices. Hosted by Robin Eisler and Evan Eisler, you won't want to miss these great episodes that will help you run your booster club like a champ. Welcome to the Boosted Volunteer. Today we're talking to the team from UCO. UCO is a payment facilitator providing software companies and other businesses with credit card, ACH, and prepaid card payment capability. Founded in 1998, UCO is a NACHA certified organization and listed on the NASDAQ. And they serve multiple industry verticals with world-class technology that facilitates payment acceptance and fund disbursement in a single full-stack ecosystem. Wow, that's a lot of words, guys. We're going to have to break that down for the listeners today. We've got a whole group from UCO with us today. We've got Julie Villarreal, Tracy Rickman, and Clayton Clark. If you guys will each kind of just walk through a quick intro and your role at UCO and give us a little overview. Hi there, and thank you for having me. Julie Villarreal, Vice President of Payment Acceptance here at UCO. My team works with our sales team to onboard new accounts and just basically supports and services the accounts during the life cycle that they're with of Booster Hub and UCO. I'm Tracy Rickman. I am the Director of Development for UCO. I am responsible for creating and maintaining our uh, APIs and our infrastructure. I am Clayton Clark. I'm a Director of Sales Operations, and I have the privilege of working with folks like Robin and all of our other partners across our platform and just supporting them in any way we can and making sure that their downstream customers have the best possible payments experience. Awesome. Awesome. Well, to keep it simple for everybody, you guys are the team that makes it possible to enter your credit card online and get that money into the Booster Club's bank account at the end of the day, right? That's, that's, that's right. Terms. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm excited today to kind of dive into the payment world. There's so many variables and different directions that nonprofits can go. And so I think having your all's expertise today and just giving people a little bit of the information that they may or may not have will be really helpful for our organizations to make decisions in the future. So just to kick it off, people are familiar with Square and Visa. How does UCO fit in? What role does UCO play in all of that? Sure. So uh, UCO is very similar to the likes of Square and Stripe versus Visa or the larger processors like TSIS and WorldPay. So you really have two main type of processing accounts or merchant accounts. The first is going to be your traditional type. They involve the long application process, invasive underwriting, long development cycles, things of that nature. And so that's going to be your TSIS, WorldPay kind of style. These are like uh, the, the, st- the older organizations, Tracy, like if you wanted a credit card terminal, you'd go to your bank and you'd apply and you'd pay by month and just kind of a long involved process to be able to accept exactly. credit cards. And companies like Square kind of kicked off the payment facilitator model. In this model, the payment facilitator takes on all the risk and possibly reward in doing all the underwriting of their own, creating new friendly APIs to consume by the individuals and are really tailored more towards ISV businesses rather than single large merchant accounts. 
For example, a payment facilitator can underwrite a merchant account and have it spun up in minutes versus a multi-week process. And so for UCO, we are similar to the square and stripes of the world there. So we have a very simple boarding process that lets the ISV control and spin up these new accounts. We also have great APIs like Square and Stripe. But where we really you know, have a difference over those companies is our personal touch. It's where we come in and help during the development cycle. So as an ISV comes in, we have a whole slew of APIs, but they don't use every piece of it. So we sit down and we go through those with them, tailor to their particular use case scenario. And then once we do have a live integration and we're boarding merchants and those merchants are processing, we have a whole support team here to help out with the after process. So Square and Stripe, they're great. They're big companies. They can do a lot of things. They have great APIs. But if you run into any trouble, you kind of get stuck. And I'm sure we've all heard the horror stories where somebody's account gets (laughs) frozen and they have no way of getting a hold of anybody, releasing their funds. And we really pride ourselves on that white love experience. That's definitely been our experience at Booster Hub and finding sometimes in in the payment world, you know, you're dealing with money and banks and all sorts of variables that being able just to have a person on the other end that you can call and talk to and get some information from is so helpful. We really appreciate that. And, And for our listeners, API is just code for when a software system calls another software system and talks to it through a pre-designated set of codes, there's probably a better definition for that. (laughs) Application programming interface. There we go. So two software Uh, systems talking to each other, right? Yeah, a preset of contracts between two pieces of software to let them communicate back and forth. Love it, love it. Now, tell us a little bit about the difference between credit card payments and ACH payments, because in our organizations, you can accept both. And what's the difference in costs and risks and how those two things work like on the back end? Because they work a little differently. Absolutely. They're about as different as you can possibly get in terms of that. ACH is a very early form of electronic payment and can really be thought of like an electronic version of a physical check. So just like a physical check, when you accept that check, you don't actually have the money yet. There's no way to see if those funds are good or even if the bank account that's tied to that check is a valid bank account or if it is a completely bogus routing and accounting number on it. So ACH process follows that same kind of information. It uses a routing and accounting number, which are also printed on the bottom of the check. Now, we collect the records electronically throughout the day. And in the evening, we take all those, we batch them up into a special file format and send them off through the Federal Reserve to the receiving bank. That receiving bank then will process that file, will move funds if they're available. And if they're not available or the account is closed or doesn't exist, that bank has up to three days to respond back to the originating bank that it didn't exist or there was an issue. So it can take several days to confirm those good funds, a very slow process. So normally you would not use ACH for the purchase of physical goods where somebody's going to take the goods and walk out. So in the old days, you go to the supermarket, pay with a check, you walk out, you could have balanced a check and there's no way they can recover for those. Same thing holds true with ACH. You don't want to release physical goods or service until you have confirmed that the funds have cleared. 
So a good place to use an ACH or when you have any kind of reoccurring subscription to where you could cut off the account at any point if need be or let them try again. So like paying for your mortgage payment or your Netflix payment. These are perfect scenarios to use an ACH or a donation. ACH is the cheaper of the processes and is usually a fixed rate versus a credit card being a percentage based. So it's just credit like, card. it's basically a check. It can bounce. Exactly. It can bounce. It can not be in existence. It can be a frozen account. They can do a stop payment before it gets there. You really don't know for three days until that is actually passed. There are efforts both by the ACH network and the Federal Reserve to make a more instant payment version of that that has real-time authorization. The first parts of that are available now for pushing funds, but not for receiving funds. So as that technology increases, we will be looking into adding that to our portfolio. So credit cards, on the other hand, are a real-time network. So when you create a request for a credit card payment, you're going to get a real-time answer. So you're going to either get an approved or you're going to get a decline and usually get a decline reason. So it could be insufficient funds. It could be that the card is stolen and has been flagged as such. So there's no waiting period there. If you get a, a successful authorization, those funds are going to settle as quick as the next day to the merchant's bank account versus having to wait three or more days on an ACH. These are the perfect type of transactions for any kind of retail, things of that nature to where you want to get real-time confirmation that physical goods are going to be exchanged, things of that nature. Now, credit cards are a higher cost. There's a lot more people involved in that network. And I think we have a further on question to kind of explain the fees and such. So I'll save that for that time. But in the end, both products can be used in combination with each other, just kind of in different purposes, depending on the scenario. And it kind of comes down to two main deciding factors is the speed of the transaction clearing and the cost. Got it. Now, UCO is NACHA certified. Can you explain what that means, Tracy? Sure. So NACHA is the governing party behind all of the ACH payments. So they're the ones who create the rules, enforce them, and do that governance. All banks have to be NACHA certified, but only a handful of third-party senders, such as UCO, have that distinction. You don't have to have that certification to send ACH transactions, but it does show that you've passed all the different audits or adhering to the policies, have the proper financial and technical safeguards in place. And UCO is very proud to have been the first third-party sender to receive that certification. Great, great. Well, there's a lot of different ways, you know, as we've already talked about to accept credit cards, you've got the squares and the stripes and a dozen or more other various names where you can go sign up online and get a device and go out there. What are some of the best practices that merchants and when I'm talking about merchants specifically, booster clubs or people running small nonprofits should look for and what are some things they should avoid? Yeah, so exactly like you said, Robin, there's a bunch of different ways that credit card processing is handled. And specifically in the aspects of billing, contracts, things like that. So I think the devil's in the details, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of times you look at these merchant statements from these various providers and they're 15, 25 pages long. It's almost written in some sort of code that you can't read and you never could if you wanted to. So 
A lot of times they'll say, hey, you know, someone will come to you and offer you this great rate that no one else can touch or anything like that. And in reality, it's only for a few specific credit cards, but other ones are going to be charged at a higher rate and lots of ancillary fees and things like that. So that's one of the great things that we've done in this partnership with Booster Hub is, you know, we really simplified all that and made it very easy to understand in a way that's written in plain English. And so I think that's one thing that's really important is just understanding you might be getting told one thing, but it might not be exactly what it is at the end of the day. And then also contracts, things like that. You know, a lot of people try to lock you into a long-term deal or have all these penalties if you want to go do something else. And they make it difficult for you to have options instead of just providing you a really great solution so you don't need options. So I think those are two really kind of key things to look at. Then I'll just add to that, basically just reemphasize what Tracy said as far as, you know, you've got familiar names in the industry like Square and Stripe. And like Clayton said, just be cautious of the rates. They might offer you a low rate. Then you have to be careful of additional card brand network fees, acquiring bank fees. When you get your end of month statement, they may not list out those additional fees and you don't really know what you're paying for. And by using Booster Hub, you're not only getting benefits of an organized application to plan out your club's activities and sales, but you also get the benefit of a flat rate with no surprises. Your statement will be clean, easy to understand when you get bill, your bill. And, you know, as Tracy mentioned, we have 24-7 support. So you can call and get a live person and get a response to your email or your phone call within minutes. And you're not going to be with a large processor and be put on hold. We don't have a call center and you're not going to have to wait for an answer and things like that. So there's definitely benefits of going with us. And I do like that, that fixed fee, you know, it's so hard when you're running an organization, I mean, you don't really have any controls to what card the user pulls out there when they're getting ready to pay, whether it's American Express or a debit card. And so just knowing you're going to pay the same fee is huge, right? Like that's a lot of banks, the old traditional credit card systems, you're paying all sorts of different fees depending on the card and all of that. So I think that's a big thing. It's especially true, Robin, in the nonprofit space. I mean, you have a lot of people. They're not a group of professional accountants. Right, um, right. And so it's to, nice to, to know make what it you can count simpler. on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just to make it really simple and flat and, hey, this is what it's going to be, you know, it's really nice, especially in the nonprofit space. So we talk about credit card fees and there's different layers. So somebody comes up and they pay with a visa, but that's going through Booster Hub, through UCO to some bank. How does that work? Like generally, like how does Visa get paid? I, you know, explain that. <laughs> sure. So this is a little trickier topic to explain than the, some of the other ones. And we kind of touched on it already there. You know, in a traditional sense, you're going to be paying something called Interchange Plus, where is in, the transaction is going to have different costs associated with it. And you're paying a premium on top of that. So each transaction is going to cost a different amount. Very hard to understand and know what you're going to pay at the end of the month. So what UCO's primary pricing model is a fixed rate price. So on this one, let's use 3% for a round easy number there. If you had a $100 transaction, 3% is going to be $3 that's going to be paid to the processor, in this case, UCO. UCO is going to pay the downstream people in this. So let's say the cost on that transaction to us was $2.75. 
we profited a quarter, then the settling, the clearing agency is going to take part of that. And then they're going to end up paying Visa in the end. So Visa is kind of the last chain of that. So So everybody is sharing part of the interchange costs. But the merchant is who is paying the overall. Like we mentioned, you have one card, maybe a Visa airline rewards card. That card may actually cost more than 3%. So in that scenario, UCO would take a loss on that transaction. And the next transaction maybe is at 2.5%. And UCO will make half a percent on that one. So we play this card mix. And hopefully we turn out you know, profitable in the end. But the merchants are able to count on a fixed cost on every single transaction, not worrying about whether it's an Amex or a rewards card or a debit card. They're able to calculate and know exactly what their expenditure is going to be. And UCO takes on all the burden of worrying about the card mix there. So let's talk a little bit about kind of touch on fraud. But in the credit card world, you talk about card present and card not present or point of sale. Can you kind of just explain generally the differences between those? Yeah, absolutely. So when we think of card present and card not present, you know, two things really come to mind. And it is exactly like you said, it's fraud and it's expenses. The further away you get from the physical card, the more expensive it is and the more likelihood you have of instances of fraud. So card present is simply that. The physical plastic card is going to be presented at the point of sale and it has a very low instance of any fraudulent activity. And the credit card networks pay for any of the losses incurred in fraud. So when fraud occurs, those expenses that we are charged get higher, again, the further away we get from the actual physical card. So in an e-commerce card not present, you know, somebody, a bad actor could have gotten the credit card information and, and could be fraudulently purchasing something. And the card network eats that cost. And so that's why card not present is more expensive than card present is. So card present is always preferable from a fraud prevention, you know, expense. But we we understand business is done in all facets and all ways in today's world. So those are kind of the two things that come to mind when we talk about card present, card not present. And outside of those two variables, what are some other ways that organizations can avoid fraud or be on the lookout for if I'm running an organization? What are some things I can do and not do to try to reduce credit card fraud or ACH fraud? So as Clayton mentioned, there's a benefit of having card present and doing card present transactions. You have the cardholder in front of you. You can always ask for an ID if you feel the need to. But just always make sure you provide customers with receipts when possible to avoid any discrepancies later, you know, with refunds or chargeback disputes saying that the product wasn't received. You know, just always inform the customer of any refund policies you have. If you're going to pass on a convenience fee or service fee, be sure to communicate that, display that information somewhere around your business. Other tips to avoid fraud, I mean, just secure, if you're using a card present, a terminal device, make sure you secure that device. Make sure not people don't have access to that to run transactions. Never write down or store card information or card data anywhere. That's That's just not a good business practice. That's a good Um, point to touch on, Julie, is that 
in the software systems, the cards, you never really see that data, right? It's all encrypted. As soon as somebody enters mm-hmm. their card, it kind of goes to, well... A token. Yeah, a token. So it's not stored as a number somewhere like you might type in on a spreadsheet. Account. Ideally, that is correct. But we have seen, heard horror stories where merchant may be recording raw card information in their database or writing out to logs. So those are definitely things to avoid doing. And in the card industry, you have what's called PCI, as a payment card industry, DSS, their security standard. And UCO is a PCI level one certified processor. And we take all that risk, all the encryption. We have ways to send the card information directly to us without ever passing through a merchant software system, preventing cases like accidentally logging this stuff out or recording it in any other fashion. We provide a tokenization system where you can keep this information is totally secure. The tokens are unique to that merchant and keep you out of those high-risk scenarios. And so we've talked just a little bit, we've touched on this already, but What are some best practices that we can do for online sales and for in-person sales? We've kind of summarized a little bit, but maybe have a few more. Sure. Um, So Julie said some of these items here, but a couple items that I want to kind of add on there is there are optional things you can do when creating a credit card transaction. So two of those things being the address and the CVV. Those are the three or four digits that are on the back of the card normally. Technically, those fields are optional. But we do always recommend utilizing those fields. They will cut down the fraud. So if you do supply those fields and the data is invalid, the bank will decline that transaction or send you a response code, say the address, maybe the zip code matches, but the street address doesn't. And then you can actually make the choice of whether you want to go ahead and accept that payment or not. So those two items right there can help a lot fighting the fraud. Also, when you're implementing some kind of payment mechanism, you want to make sure that you introduce some kind of rate limiting mechanism. For example, on our pre-built pages, we have a recapture on them that where somebody has to you know, prove they're human. So prevent somebody from running a like a stolen credit card list against a page over and over. And all of a sudden you have, you know, several hundred transactions for a dollar all ran on your account. So the point of those little boxes you have to check or do the little puzzle is so that somebody just can't run a bunch of numbers over and over very quickly. Is that the case? Exactly. The recapture makes there be a human element. So somebody's got to click a button and sometimes perform a challenge. This means this can't be run through a script and done in rapid succession. So somebody could still sit there, type in an amount, click the button, do the challenge. But you know they're going to be limited maybe one per 30 seconds. An attacker is going to use a page that is unprotected to do this where they can run hundreds or thousands within just a minute or two. They're not going to take the time to do this. Other mechanisms for this would be to have your payment screen behind a login. But in certain scenarios, a guest checkout is the experience. And on those, you want to have some kind of thing like a recapture to do that rate limiting. On the other side, the point of sales, you really don't have that same mechanism there. Our terminals offer the swipe, the chip, and contact payments, a contactless payment, so Apple Pay and Google Pay. These are not your old-style dumb terminals where you just punch in an amount and run a card. So you don't have a whole lot of threat of somebody just walking up and you know messing with the terminal. These terminals are integrated with the ISV software. So the software, the point-of-sale software, would initiate the transaction. The terminal will light up and take the payment at that point. 
as far as the best practices on those terminals, they can be connected to the internet in several different means, Wi-Fi, Ethernet, and some of them even through cellular. Always try to use the most solid connection you have available. So if the terminal has Ethernet and you have Ethernet available, that's always going to be more reliable than what Wi-Fi is. And Wi-Fi is going to be more reliable usually than a cellular connection, but they have all the different options so you can use whatever you have available. These are completely encrypted end-to-end, so there's no way somebody's going to eavesdrop on your network or Wi-Fi and be able to intercept any kind of data on there. So they're very secure. So y'all have been in the payment business for a while. What, any funny stories, any craziest credit card sale you've seen or something that might be pretty interesting to talk about? Sure. Uh, you know, I've been here almost 10 years now and I've seen a lot of unique requests. Nothing, you know, too crazy, but one of the items that kind of sticks out in my mind is that we had a merchant getting a hold of us because they weren't able to process a sale and it was over their limits. And so when we asked what the value of the transaction they were trying to run was, they said it was over $1.2 million <laughs> for a single credit card transaction. This was well above our, you know, built-in safeties and limits in our system. And, you know, we had to be like, why do you need to run? one so large there, and it happened to be a business-to-business transaction between like a manufacturing facility. So their cards supported it. So we had to make some updates on our side to allow certain use cases like this to be able to handle. On the ACH side, you know, we have transactions that big, you know, fairly regularly, but that was kind of unique to have that on a credit card side. I think one of the funniest stories I had was Tracy, as a matter of fact, was selling some popcorn for his son's, I think, Eagle Scouts or Boy Scouts or something. And I remember wanting to buy some and not necessarily having any cash. And he said, he whips out a a mobile terminal device and said, I'll just take your payment. You got a card. So just right there on the spot, he wasn't going to miss that sale. So he took my payment. I got my popcorn, but it's the same kind of devices that your merchants would use, very slick devices, cellular capabilities, things like that. So it's so funny, even the Girl Scouts now, right? Like they have their own little ways that they can do things. You got no payment. It goes untaken. <laughs> you can't use the excuse now when they knock on your door, like, oh, I don't have any cash. <laughs> no well, cash. Yeah. yeah. Or, <laughs> That's right. I think of uh, in front of the AGB, right? When you walk out, because right. you're like, oh, I just spent all my money. And they're like, they're no, like no, no, we can take your electronic payment. I love it. Well, you know, one of our things at Booster Hub is that being involved as a kid in sports and activities generally has some impact in the rest of your life. So just curious, of the three of you, did you guys play sports or do band or anything in high school? And if so, how did it impact you? Yeah, no, I was blessed. Played sports all growing up, played high school football here in San Antonio, and actually was also blessed enough to play uh, Division II college football at Abilene Christian, Abilene. And I mean, lifelong lessons, tons of them. Teaches you how to work in a team and teaches you how to be a leader when you need to lead and a follower when you need to follow. And no, it's uh, invaluable lessons that you carry on the rest of your life. I'm the same here. You know, volleyball in high school, did dance. My kids, of course, football, track, cheer. I understand that the participation level has increased so much over the years to 90%. You know, these kids are all in some kind of an extracurricular activity. And that's why I love your product, because what you're doing for the clubs and the schools, it enhances the experience for the volunteers, the parents, the students, the staff, and everyone. It just increases participation. So... We had a club yesterday we were talking to, and they found that after COVID, 
the participation rates went up substantially because the kids realized what they were missing when they couldn't go. And so bands are now at record size and sports teams are, they're a little more limited, but they're at record tryout numbers and all of this because the kids in 2021, 22, and now in 23 want to get out there and want to do it. But Tracy, what about you? It's kind of funny you mentioned the size of the bands. Uh, when I was in high school, this was, you know, a little over 20 years ago now, our band was kind of the big thing there. Uh, you know, I was in football and tennis and choir, but our band had over 500 members in it. And this was a 4A school. So very large. Where was Texas. that? Uh, it was just outside of Waco, Texas. Robinson was the... Okay. Um, but, band. you know, I played all the different sports, band, choir. And like Clayton said, you learn many lifelong lessons, you know, focusing on team goals, group motivation, putting other people's needs above your own is another great one. And like, Julie, I have three kids. Our oldest is a senior. She's been in the pep officer at O'Connor High School, which I know y'all signed you know, not too long ago. You'll have a couple. <laughs> She's also in the orchestra. My youngest now is in sixth grade and the middle child is sophomore. And so they're all participating in sports and music abilities here. And it is really kind of great to see them pick up these same skills that a parent can't always teach in these group environments. And to see them grow like that is really rewarding. It's huge. Well, thank you for all that you do at UCO and all the support that you provide our booster clubs. It's invaluable and helps them do their job. We appreciate you. And hopefully we will get this information out to the merchants so that they can make better credit card accepting decisions in the future. Of course. And thank you very much for having us. We were all very happy we could be here today. We're very pleased to serve you and your customers and always here for you. We value our relationship very much. Thank you. The Boosted Volunteer is brought to you by Booster Hub. To find out more about Booster Hub and how our app can help you improve communications, increase engagement, raise more money, and manage your Booster Club responsibly, visit www.boosterhub.com. And then make sure to search for Booster Club Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Booster Hub, thanks for listening.